Before we get started, I want to make a couple announcements. First, I want to share one of our upcoming seminars, 2020 in Turmoil, a Jungian Astrological Perspective, with Boris Matthews, PhD, LCSW, NCSIA, on Saturday, June 20th, from 1 to 4 p.m. online via Zoom. So if you're interested in that course, um, you'll have to adjust for your own time zone, of course. Um, you can register for this course on our website, and we will send you a link to participate via Zoom the morning of the course. There are three CEs available. We're currently offering our courses online at uh, 60% of our regular rate during this time of uncertainty. I also want to mention that the Salome Institute for Jungian Studies is having a couple of online uh, salons with Kwame Scruggs, PhD, the title of the series being Life in the Shadow, Being Black in a Jungian World, and those are on June 27th and July 4th. And you can find more information about those courses at salomeinstitute.com, S-A-L-O-M-E institute.com. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the archives of the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. In the current context, it seems appropriate to share another full seminar, Racism and the Cultural Complex, Welcome to the United States of America, with Anita Mandley, LCPC, and Stephanie Ferris, J.D. LCSW. From the seminar description... A recent article in the Huffington Post reads, A white man guns down nine black people in a church in South Carolina. The state's Confederate battle flag stays waving in the wind the next day. The white man is arrested. He is given a Kevlar jacket. Welcome to the United States of America in 2015. It is impossible to imagine how 350 years of slavery, segregation, and racism would not have monumental consequences for both white and black Americans. And yet, many want to believe that electing an African-American president has changed all that. Events during the last year have turned that fantastical belief on its head, and now, more than ever, we must work to understand the insidious nature of racism. Depth psychology has an important role to play in this endeavor, especially as we begin to understand how shared historical and cultural trauma experiences lead to cultural complexes in groups and within the psyche of individuals. This course will explore the presence and power of historical and cultural traumas, how the legacy of these traumas impact the brains, bodies, and minds of individuals, and how the shared experience of trauma creates cultural complexes that structure emotional experience. More about the course, including learning objectives, recommended reading and viewing, 
and a link to the slides used in the talk are available in the show notes. Anita Manley, MS LCPC, is a psychotherapist in Skokie at the Center for Contextual Change. The center is a group practice specializing in the treatment of trauma, violence, abuse, and neglect, working with both survivors and offenders. Ms. Manley specializes in complex PTSD and dissociative disorders. Stephanie Ferris, JD, LCSW, is a psychoanalyst in Chicago and member of the Chicago Society of Jungian Analysts. She has a private practice in Chicago in the Chicago Loop, where she sees individuals and couples and runs psychotherapy groups. She has a special interest in the relevance of psychoanalytic thought to social issues such as addictions, race, organizational resilience, politics, and animal welfare. One cool evening, a mother and a father took their five-year-old son to the theater on the Upper West Side of New York City. The theater was crowded, and as the family rode the escalator down to the ground floor, the little boy got in the way of a white woman who pushed him aside and said, come on. The father's reaction was strong and immediate. He turned and spoke to this woman with words that were hot of the moment and of all of his history. She shrunk back, shocked, and a white man spoke up in her defense. The man was soon supported by other white people in the assembling crowd. The white man came closer, grew louder, and as the father pushed him away, the man said, I could have you arrested. The father came home shaken, filled with a mixture of shame and rage. Another father might have left it at that, but this was Ta-Nehisi Coates. In the newly published Between the World and Me, Coates writes of this and many other revelations in an attempt to share with his now 15-year-old son his personal journey to discover what it means to be a black man in America. He goes on, I have told that story many times, not out of bravado, but out of a need for absolution. I have never been a violent person. I've never felt the pride that is supposed to come with righteous self-defense and justified violence. But I had forgotten the rules. An error as dangerous on the Upper West Side of Manhattan as on the West Side of Baltimore. One must be without error here. Walk in a single file, work quietly, pack an extra number two pencil, make no mistakes. Had I informed this woman that when she pushed my son, she was acting according to a tradition that held black bodies as lesser, her response would likely have been, and I'm not a racist, or maybe not. But my experience in this world has been that the people who believe themselves to be white are obsessed with the politics of personal exoneration. And the word racist to them conjures, if not a tobacco-spitting oaf, then something just as fantastic. There are no racists in America, or at least none that the people who need to be white know personally. 
In the era of mass lynching, it was so difficult to find who specifically served as the executioner that such deaths were often reported by the press as having happened, quote, at the hands of persons unknown, end quote. And finally, he says, the metal that it takes to look away from the horror of our prison system, from police forces transformed into armies, from the long war against the black body, is not forged overnight. This is the practiced habit of jabbing out one's eyes and forgetting the work of one's hands. To acknowledge these horrors means turning away from the brightly rendered version of our country as it has always declared itself, and turning toward something murkier and unknown. It is still too difficult for most Americans to do this, but that is your work. It must be, if only to preserve the sanctity of your mind. With this, Ta-Nehisi Coates invites his son and us to move beyond our tendency to live within a one-sided view of the world and confront what Jung called the shadow side of our personalities. The part of ourselves that we disavow, see as inferior, negative, worthless, primitive, and a part that can only be experienced through projection on another. Ta-Nehisi Coates' invitation reminds us that all is not lost, that there is much more to us than ego consciousness. But it means that we must move into those murkier, unknown places within. Today, we'll explore how social forces and power relations in the psyche exist on multiple levels and can either limit us from becoming fully conscious or, alternatively, allow us to develop greater consciousness. And so let us begin. Um, we have a caveat here. Uh, we have a great deal of information to share with you today and probably closer to six than three hours, but we're going to make adjustments as we go along so we can uh, finish on time today. All right, so this is uh, about racism and race. So what is race? What is racism? One of the most important takeaways from Ta-Nehisi's letter is how he redefines our notion of race. Citing history, he reminds us that race is a child of racism. It's not the other way around. He notes how white is as much a social construct as black, and that before white people were white, they had other identity, identities that can refer to religion, culture, or country of origin. W.E.B. Du Bois spoke of this in the early part of the 20th century. In his essays on being black, and again in The Souls of White Folk, he tells us, the discovery of personal whiteness among the world's peoples is a very modern thing, a 19th and 20th century matter indeed. The ancient world would have laughed at such a distinction. The Middle Ages regarded skin color with mild curiosity, and even up into the 18th century, we ignored color and race even more than birth. Today, we have changed all that, and the world, in a sudden emotional conversion, has discovered that it is white, and by that token, wonderful. 
The term race was introduced into English in the 16th century and was defined as a small number of groups of human beings based on lineage and based partly on common descent. But it was used to mean a nation or a tribe or an ethnic group. Classical civilizations placed value on familial and tribal affiliations rather than physical characteristics when referring to a person's race. References to different physical characteristics were considered by classical thinkers like <clears throat> Hippocrates and Aristotle as being determined primarily by the climate and geography. So here I wanted to show you a, a um, one uh, drawing, uh, a diagram that Jung had for, um, for the psyche. And what he shows here is, if you can see, um, these are like individual people, right? Okay, you have the one person um, in the one, it's a, live, he lives in an isolated nation, okay? We might say that H, central energy, is like the collective unconscious. Um, and going on up through the various levels, we're talking about more archetypal energies. And then you move into E, which is an ethnic group. Again, people are connected in this situation together. But in D, the nation is separate. These two are connected in terms of nations, but this is separate. So in a way, and then he moves into tribe, and then family, and then the individual. And you might see this as various degrees of, of what the cultural unconscious might be composed of. So you have the individual family, which is more the personal unconscious, the tribe, nation, ethnic group, much more of the cultural unconscious, and then the primitive human ancestors down through the central energy, more of the collective unconscious. So back to race. The Enlightenment changed all that, all these early notions of race when Europeans began to define race as a biological concept. Linnaeus, let's see, the modern concept of race was an invention originating in the 18th century with this man, Carl von Linnaeus. He created a taxonomic system to classify life, plants, animals, humans, including a system using color to classify races and assigning moral and intellectual capacities for each. So he described Homo Americanus as reddish, caloric, obstinate, contented. What happened there? I knew that was going to happen. And uh, regulated by custom. Homo Europaeus as white, fickle, sanguine, blue-eyed, gentle, and governed by laws. Guess what? Von Linnaeus was European. <laughs> Homo Asiaticus as sallow, grave, dignified, avaricious, and ruled by opinions. And Homo Afer as black, phlegmatic, cunning, lazy, lustful, careless, and governed by caprice. Others in the 18th century built on this notion concocted by Linnaeus to prove the superiority of whites to blacks. 
Okay, then came along someone named Johann Blumenbach, who classified five varieties of man. The Caucasian, which was the white race, the Mongolian, the yellow race, the Malayan, the brown race, the Ethiopian, the black race, and the American, the red race, probably because we're so angry. Um, and then, do you know where the term Caucasian came from? Yes, the Caucasus Mountains. Blumenbach believed Caucasians to be the first race on Earth and took the name from Mount Caucasus, a mountain he believed cradled the most beautiful race, Georgia, at the, at the Russian border. It's right down here. <clears throat> it is near the place where it was thought Noah's Ark rested after the flood and in Greek mythology it's where Zeus changed, chained Prometheus to a rock that is all and now we have a white race and a black race scientists pursuing racial classifications in the 1800s relied on Blumenbach's classifications cementing the term in anthropology as well as in cultural history. We know, of course, about efforts in the United States to prove white superiority to blacks. Listen to where this went at the Constitutional Convention of 1787. The federal constitution decides with great propriety on the case of our slaves when it views them in the mixed character of persons and property. This is, in fact, their true character. That was James Madison, who argued that slaves should be considered property for tax purposes and individuals for determining a state's population. The solution to this dilemma was the three-fifths compromise. Three-fifths of a slave population was counted toward a state's total population, such that blacks then became three-fifths of a human being. I was... Uh, sharing some of this with a friend this past week, and he reminded me about um, Othello. Uh, I was telling him that, you know, race was a, a pretty modern invention, and uh, he said, but Shakespeare wrote about, wrote about uh, the Black Moor. And I said, yes, but he wrote about the Black Moor. He didn't write about the Black. Um, and then I thought, you know, I don't know enough about the Moors. You know, I, I need to do some investigating. So I did a little research on the Moors who were Muslim, since obviously I didn't remember or never thoroughly learned about them, and this is, this is what I found. The African Moors' occupation of Spain began in 711 AD and lasted for 1,800 years through uh, up till uh, 1492 when Actually, they did accompany Spanish um, uh, explorers who discovered America. They, they accompanied uh, Columbus, but of course we didn't hear about them. In that time, they introduced advances in mathematics, astronomy, chemistry, physics, medicine, hydraulic engineering, geography, aviation, philosophy, art, 
agriculture, and aquaculture, including intimate knowledge of irrigation. This is a, this guy who actually uh, created an airplane. Why does this keep happening? Um, he wasn't able to land it well, but he did get it up in the air. They brought universal education to Spain, while in Christian Europe, 99% of the population was illiterate, including many of the kings. Moorish Spain had 17 great universities, while Europe had two, one in Paris and one in Oxford. It was the Moorish system of education that seeded the European Renaissance. Who knew? By the 10th and 11th century, Al-Andalus, which was Moorish, Moorish Spain had more than 70 public libraries when there were none in Europe. They introduced paper. This is uh, one of the first uh, pieces of paper. Arabic numerals. New crops such as citrus fruits, dates, ginger, sugarcane, cotton, silk, and rice. They advanced fashion and hygiene, inventing deodorant, toothpaste, shampoo, and starting a vogue by changing clothes according to the weather and the seasons. They introduced the use of crystal as a container for drinks and initiated the three-course meal. Have any of you been to Cordoba? It is a, if you ever go, please go see this mosque. It is unbelievable. The Moors brought the compass from China and other new knowledge from China, India, and Arabia to Europe. And long before there were castles in Europe, Moorish rulers lived in extravagant palaces and built other architectural wonders of the world, such as this one, the Great Mosque of Cordoba. This is the part of the inside. I don't know if you can see it. It's just, it's, it's spectacular. Um, now the... Um, this mosque is, is located in Cordoba, which was the capital of Al-Andalus. Um, and Cordoba rivaled Baghdad and Constantinople as one of the most important cities in the world. It boasted a population of 500,000 in the 10th century, had street lighting, 50 hospitals with running water, 300 public baths, and 500 mosques. This is, uh, should have leave that alone. Um, in Cordoba, the Moors, Jews, Muslims, and Christians live together in harmony. This is uh, a part of that community that still exists. So why am I telling you this? Why is this important? The original Moors, like the original Egypt Egyptians, were black Africans. They had what was described as dark skin and woolly hair and today would be deemed members of the black race. How many of you knew the story about the heritage of blacks in America? You mean about the Moors? Pardon me? You mean about the Moors? Well, as being a heritage of, of uh, African Americans. Uh, how can it be that we don't know this? Uh, how many black Americans are unaware of their rich history? In a 1913 sociological text, the American Charles Elwood wrote, 
The problem of the Negro and of the Indian and of all uncivilized races is essentially the same. The problem is how a large mass of people, inferior in culture and perhaps also inferior in nature, can be adjusted relatively to the civilization of a people much their superior in culture. So I'm arguing that by internalizing a culture and value system that promotes the superiority of one group over another, the people deemed inferior lose connection with their own value system and culture and begin to believe that all things associated with whiteness are superior and that all things associated with blackness are inferior. After centuries of slavery and decades of institutionalized oppression, many blacks have adopted the culture and value system of white racist America. I liken this to soul murder. It's a term created in the 19th century as well by playwrights Henrik Ibsen and August Strindberg. It means, quote, the destruction of the love of life in another human being. In Leonard Shengold's Soul Murder Revisited, Thoughts About Therapy, Hate, Love, and Memory, he equates the destructive effects of child abuse with that of soul murder and how through projective identification, the person who is abused frequently takes on the guilt of the crime, which the abuser may or may not have felt. I'm not saying African Americans are, are children who've been <coughs> abused, but when somebody has undergone abuse or trauma, uh, that's so systemic, uh, the result is the same. The guilt accompanied by a need for punishment leads to an identification with the aggressor and feeling, and, and feeling, and sometimes acting on sadistic and vengeful impulses. The compulsion to repeat traumatic events results in passing down the abuse from one generation to the next. To summarize, the culture of the United States internalized the classification system of European theorists and continued the effort to prove whites were superior to blacks. Slavery supported a white ethnocentric model based on a belief in colorism, legally supporting that a person of color was a slave. Racism is not the same as prejudice. It is the belief that people differ along biological and genetic lines and that one's group is superior to another. This belief is coupled with the power to negatively affect the lives of those deemed inferior. Racism, therefore, solidified in our cultural unconscious here in America, a concept of race that denigrated black Americans. Switch it up. She's doing it. Can everybody feel their feet? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's check. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. All right, Eric. I know you got my back. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing great. Okay. Okay, so I took a fair amount of trainings on cultural and historical trauma, and I generally like to begin by explaining what it is, not because I think people 
don't know what it is, but just sort of to kind of have a common language or to understand the lens through which I see historical and cultural trauma. And I know we probably have a variety of ways people got to this training and uh, perspectives they have on on this kind of conversation. So maybe just coming to some kind of common place might be helpful. So just some basic assumptions about historical trauma. That it is, huh, a mass trauma deliberately. <laughs> it's interesting. And systematically inflicted upon a large upon a target group by a subjugating dominant group. That the trauma continues over extended period of time, that people within that community have a universal experience of being traumatized and having experienced trauma. And that what one of the, the major impacts, what, uh, some of the major impact of this is that it derails the natural course and results in physical, psychological, social, and economic disparities across generations. And so how is historical trauma manifested? In this one, historical unresolved grief. And I, somebody earlier mentioned loss, right? This unresolved loss and grief, because there's actually rarely a context to, number one, even acknowledge that loss has happened, and two, a path for even um, discussing it or talking about that there actually has been loss, right? And so what have... African Americans lost. What do you think? What do you think people have lost as a result of slavery? That's not talked about or resolved. What do you think? Any ideas? Okay, thanks, Stephanie. What do you think we've lost? The loss of ambition. Okay. Oops. A loss of ambition? Huh? Uh, could you say a little more about that? Um, a clear sense of self of who they are. Okay. Where they, where they came from as a family group, as a historical, you know, you have the genesis and you have so-and-so to get so-and-so and so-and-so, and you got the whole line of a uh, uh, community. So they might not have that. Right, right. The loss of safety. Loss of safety. I would say loss of self-esteem, and, and I would go a little wider with the definition in terms of African American. I mean, somebody can walk into that without a history here, you know, come from Africa today, and it wouldn't take long to feel the cultural bias effects. Okay. I heard it, but I didn't. Loss of. Equality, loss of value, dignity. dignity. Okay. Culture. Culture. Okay. There's just the original loss of freedom. We had the original 
trauma mm -hmm. of, of enslavery and the rite of passage, mm -hmm. of loss of just freedom, as well as home and everything. Mm -hmm. All that all that is lost when we when we leave a space, but added to that was that it was involuntary, it was violent, mm -hmm. lost it. And there's so much that's lost in that. I think it is a part of loss, but it's also a gain, the gain of, of, of shame and, and feelings like that. So it's, it's from loss that you, you get something. <laughs> Because actually, shame is the secondary emotion of powerlessness. Right? We even see it with dogs. Right? When they come in contact with a dog that's more alpha or they perceive as dangerous, what do they do? They bend their head to a position of submission. That's the position of shame. Quite right. Yes, yeah, somebody in the back. I was hope. The loss of hope. Of loss of hope. Yeah. Loss of personhood. Loss of personhood. Yeah, only three fifths. Yeah. Measure with a measuring cup. Yeah. Okay. And then disenfranchised grief. Any ideas what that means? What that's about? It's belonging. Hmm? Belonging. Belonging. Yeah, a ownership. Yeah, being having some ownership and belonging. Yeah, yeah. Somebody else said you had your hand up. I was going to say ownership, and even the ownership of the grief that we're experiencing. Exactly. Yeah. Somehow there was, you know, you have um, maybe rituals or ceremonies around death or whatever. But when you can't have a conversation or you're not allowed to acknowledge it, right? Because this, a part of what the um, narrative is almost like it didn't happen and it wasn't that bad. Mm -hmm. right. And black people ought to be glad, ought to appreciate that they were brought over here because now they have a better life. Yeah. Yes? Which to me means that you can't even claim what you can't even claim or touch what you feel. I mean, mm -hmm. you must feel things at mm -hmm. some level, but you can't mm -hmm. afford to ground mm -hmm. uh, yourself in, in feeling. Mm -hmm. That's why it has to be disenfranchised. Yeah. Exactly right. And then this internalized oppression, which is an interesting concept kind of manifests in a variety of ways, even psychological, in a psychological way in, in the narratives that we tell each other that somehow, and this is an interesting thing that I've found across cultures, that somehow um, people of a darker hue have more value. Right? a darker you, even within a brown race or a black race itself, still um, the lighter you are within that spectrum, the more value you have. So that's one way. But then also, you know, it's an interesting kind of thing. Um, when it comes to the internalized depression, and you think about power, 
and how probably the thing that is hardest to tolerate and most traumatic is being powerless and immobilized, mm -hmm. right? And so if there's no place to act out our natural aggressive um, tendencies, or not self-protective and aggressive uh, impulses, that's what I meant, impulses, then at least we can do it to ourselves. And in some way, that gives us power. Right? We are, don't have to wait for it to be done by somebody else. You can do it to yourself. So that's an interesting kind of way of looking at it. And then, you know, a lot of times people will say, especially in the work with children, uh, underprivileged children or disenfranchised children, and they'll notice how strict and stern the mothers are, right? And so why was that? So we can think about how that probably came about. Probably came about from slavery because if the children misbehaved, what was going to happen? They might get sold. They might be beaten with whips. They might be killed, right? So how would a mother protect a child? Punish them first and punish them strongly enough so that the master and the overseer could see that it was taken care of and then they wouldn't do it. So it's sort of a tradition of, you know, how do we have power, but yet it's really sort of this internalized oppression. Am I making sense of this? Yeah. Okay. All right. So you think about, uh, you know, in Africa, a lot of times people will say, well, you know, Africans had slaves, and they did. I have a first-person account of a, a slave written and was born in um, 1795, and he was captured from eastern Nigeria when he was about 10, between 10 and 12, from what I can tell. And this is how he describes his experience with slavery in Africa. He says, how different was their condition from that of the slaves in the West Indies? With us, they do no more work than other members of the community, than even their master. Their food, clothing, and lodging were nearly the same as theirs, except that they were not permitted to eat with those who were freeborn. And there was scarcely any other difference between them than a superior degree of importance which the head of a family possesses in our state. <coughs> so there's probably a lot of difference between this experience of slavery and the experience of slavery in the Western Hemisphere, or maybe even in Europe, right? The children played together. Everybody shared a common language. There was a common religion. Often the slavery came to an end after a certain period of time. They were respected as people. They were allowed to marry. They were allowed to um, participate in dance and music and culture. It's a very different experience. And so this concept of post-traumatic slave syndrome, is it warm in here? Yeah. It is oh, okay because sometimes I have my own private summer, so I just have to check out <laughs> what was going on in here. Yeah. 
So post-traumatic slave syndrome is a concept pretty analogous to post-traumatic stress disorders, but describes specifically the impact of slavery and its manifestations in present day. And it's African-Americans sustain psychological and emotional injury as a direct result of slavery and continue to be injured by traumas caused by the larger society's policies of inequality, racism, and oppression. A less severe form of violence and abuse continued after slavery, officially ending with peonage, black codes, convict leasing, Convict leasing, lynchings, beatings, threats of life and property, the rise of the Klan, Jim Crow segregation, the death of Emmett Till, the race riots of the 1960s, the 1989 beating death of Mulageta Sera, an Ethiopian American by white supremacist groups, the near election of an ex-Klansman, the governor of the state of Louisiana, the 1992 beating of Rodney King, the 1999 dragging death of James Byrd in Jasper, Texas by four white youth, the police shooting death of Amadou Diallo in 1999, the 2002 police beating of 16-year-old Donovan Jackson Chavis, a special education hearing impaired youth. All of these events and more Remind African Americans every day that the trauma has never really ceased and that it is likely to continue if there is no intervention. And I think this is um, kind of the experience, recent experience of African Americans with this police shooting situation and shooting of young black males and females actually. And so this is from another slave narrative, Ida Hutchinson, born 1865. They say Negroes won't commit suicide, but Isom told us of a girl that committed suicide. There was a girl named Lou who used to run off and go to the dances. The patrollers would try to catch her, but they couldn't because she was too fast on her feet. One day they got after her in the daytime. She ran to the cabin and got her quarter, which she had hid. She put the quarter in her mouth. The white folks didn't allow the slaves to handle no money. The quarter got stuck in her throat, and she went all down to the sloop and drowned herself rather than let them beat her and mark her up. They intended to make an example to the rest of the slaves, but they didn't get Lucy. So it's an interesting kind of thing because that's sort of a narrative of survivor and power and value, suicide. So you think about how suicide happens in 2015. Does it happen in gang wars? Does it happen um, through uh, police side, I guess is the term they use, doing something that will guarantee that you do get shot? Mm -hmm. So it's an interesting construct to think of uh, suicide as power, suicide as value, taking your power back. 
And I was talking to Stephanie and I was telling her, you know, um, uh, spoken, especially in the 60s, I used to have a fair amount of contact with, have several um, African professors in college in late 60s, early 70s. And they would eventually bring up the fact that the people who, the African Americans were the ones who didn't have enough courage to kill themselves, to jump off the ships. You know, so they sort of like, kind of looked a little down on African Americans, the Africans, because we didn't, we're the descendants of slaves that didn't have enough courage to kill themselves. And something up. Honda. There's, there's, I think, though, within the mass culture, <clears throat> there may be not only um, blackness, but um, gender as well. Because women mm. also, sometimes the only power they may have, and I only know this from my research into the Vietnam refugees, a woman committed suicide as her way of having power over the family. Mm. So, uh, a good point. It's a gender issue. It could also be gender issue. Great point. So, speaking even on a neurobiological level, when people experience trauma and abuse, they have changes in the way the brain works that's going to determine how they deal with stress. And this could be one way where you, where people who have been abused are at more risk of suicide. Okay. All right. Is there something I can do so that it doesn't do that? We'll look at it during the break. Okay. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Could you go back just so I can get the source of that? Thank you. And then also what science is telling us now is that there's a new biological model of PTSD and therefore PTSD, PTSS, post-traumatic slavery syndrome, in which there's an actual alteration in, in, of genes and that it changes a person's stress response and leads to the disorder of PTSD, PTSS. So there's a genetic thing that also is happening. African Americans have a long multi-generational history of nutritional deprivation, excessive workloads, and poor health due to years of slavery and the post-slavery period of economic hardship. The intrauterine environment experienced by one generation can influence the intrauterine environment that she creates for her offspring. In theory, in theory, helping perpetuate certain biological and metabolic states, albeit in a fading fashion across multi, multiple natural lineal generations. So if you think about how traumatic stress impacts the immune system, impacts the development of the brain, while the limbic system is overdeveloped and the cortical structures are underdeveloped, when you think about what it does to metabolism, when you think about the fact that the slaves who survived the Middle Passage were the ones that retained sodium and salt, mm -hmm. 
and didn't need as much water, right? And then you think about hmm, prevalence of high blood pressure in African Americans. They were the ones who had slow metabolisms, right? So that they didn't have to be fed much and could still survive. So you think about, hmm, prevalence of obesity in African-American community. What started out as strengths and resources and resiliencies, in this context now, vulnerabilities. Not only vulnerabilities, but vulnerability in terms of how people are viewed. So you see somebody, I don't know if anybody saw the movie Precious. You see an African-American female about the size of Precious. Do you think, hmm, wonder why she's not handling that weight? Or do you think, hmm, post-traumatic slavery syndrome? Because it has a difference, too, in the way we assign responsibility and perhaps even blame. Where does it lie? What's the shame? And then this, again, concept of internalized oppression is when a member of an oppressed group believes and acts out the stereotypes created about their group. Any idea why that could happen? Why would someone act out the stereotypes that have been created? Any thoughts about that? Well, one thing is, it assures them of a spot, right? People talk, someone mentioned belonging earlier, right? It's probably a way to belong, is be who people say you are, right? If you're not who people say you are, you're going to be in danger. You're going to be in trouble. Yes? It's a survival. You have to adapt to the group for your own survival. All right. All right. There'd be also though, a playing with that, knowing, I mean, usually a minority group knows more about the majority group and versus vice versa, so there may be uh, bi- bicultural mm-hmm. issues involved here. Yeah. And play on the system, but with their own group, they can be who they want to be. So it's an interesting thing you mentioned, because when I do this training, sometimes I have people uh, do an experiment with this model developed by Pamela Hayes. I don't know if anybody's heard of this. It's called the addressing model, and it's a way of assessing for culture. And uh, so a couple of things are really interesting, but when people identify ethnicity or culture, right? They usually say, oh, German-Irish, or maybe, you know, one or two things or whatever. So at the end, I do my own for the participants, and I said, I live in three worlds. So I live in a greater American world, culture, that's my culture. I live within an African-American culture. And then within an African-American culture, I, um, my family is originally from New Orleans, so I live within a New Orleanian culture, which is even different than a larger African-American culture. We talk differently. We, when I was little, um, people spoke Creole, right? 
and uh, that was like a long time ago. But so it was a different language. We ate different foods. Um, we had different rituals, um, things like that. So the thing about being multicultural is actually true. And I'm guessing people in the larger American culture, and maybe even with being a New Orleanian, there's a larger New Orleanian culture, right? And then a African-American New Orleanian culture. Then within the African-American New Orleanian culture, there's a black culture and a Creole culture. So all these layers, right, exist. And you're right, I'm guessing that people in the larger American culture don't know that much about a Creole New Orleanian culture or black New Orleanian culture. Yeah, great point. I keep thinking you're raising your hand. I was. Oh. <laughs> I was thinking that too, and, and talking about you know a way to belong and survival, but also thinking about the effects of having your identity and yourself erased and the void that that leaves mm-hmm. for something powerful in the global culture or the value system mm-hmm. to take its place in our own culture. Great point. Oh, that's mine for right now. Is that it? Yeah, that's mine for right now. I'll pick up later. I mean, yeah. Stephanie, would this be a good time for a break? Because we're about to sure. sure, we yeah. can do it now. Yeah. Okay. All right, we're, I'm going to talk. We're, we're running out of time, so I'm going to may, maybe skip through a few parts of this, but how many of you um, are familiar with Jung and Jung's structure of the psyche? Not not too many. Okay. All right. Well, I will go over this then. Um, is this 17? Yes. Okay. Jung was um, very, very interested in the collective. I mean, that's, that's his um, main idea. And also extremely in into uh, studying the differences and similarities between groups of people and their cultures. Um, He explored sacred traditions and symbols um, of other people, uh, peoples throughout the world, and as well as national personality characteristics. In many ways, he was attuned to the cultural unconscious, but he never named it. This was left to a Jungian analyst to flesh out the role that culture plays in our psychic makeup. So somewhere between the personal unconscious that originated with Freud and the collective unconscious that is associated with Jung is what Jungian um, analyst Joseph, Joseph Henderson postulated as the cultural unconscious. And I talked to you about that just uh, at the beginning with the, the wavy lines and all the different layers um, so you can see that the bottom sort of layer at the bottom into the depths of everything is what Jung considered the collective unconscious. But how those archetypal images are often experienced in the world are colored and fleshed out and clothed in cultural imagery. So this, the cultural unconscious is the layer of the unconscious that's structured by large cultural patterns 
and attitudes that uh, exist in groups. Jung believed in the reality of the psyche, meaning that elements in the personal, cultural, and collective unconscious are just as real as ego consciousness, um, what we normally consider to be reality, even though they're experienced initially as shadow. Before I say very much more about shadow projections, I thought I would just uh, make sure everybody understands what uh, projections are in general. The idea is that we are so sure that somebody else is is uh, acting or behaving a certain way that resonates with something historically that's happened in our lives, and we're just so sure that's the case. And here, Dr. Furlich is uh, suggesting that the anxiety is and the, all the projections aren't real, and just uh, um, they're real, but they're something to be evaluated. They're shadow projections. And I want to say, just uh, acknowledge that Harry Wilmer, who was my original Jungian analyst, um, uh, drew this and uh, many more images to try to convey various concepts in uh, analytical psychology that are sometimes difficult to understand. He doesn't have the cultural unconscious uh, listed here, but you get the idea that uh, there's the ego has a perception um, the personal unconscious and the cultural unconscious project something on that person that's hated. And that at the core of that is an archetypal shadow, which <coughs> makes it much more painful and difficult for us to manage the feelings that come up when it's connected at such a deep level of our psyche. So in Jungian parlance, what we experience as shadow are intense, irrational projections of unconscious and undeveloped undeveloped parts of ourselves that we tend to project onto other individuals and groups. He defines the shadow as the unknown side of the personality, its inferior, less developed qualities. And so the work of analysis, or any time we're moving into the murkier parts of, in the unknown parts of our psyche, involves a confrontation with one's own shadow. In Flannery O'Connor's brilliant short story, Everything That Rises Must Converge, a recent college graduate named Julian escorts his mother to her weekly class at the YMCA via the city bus. Julian views himself as intellectually superior and enlightened about race and social equality and continually attempts to distinguish himself from his mother, who he sees as backward and bigoted. Throughout the story, it becomes increasingly clear that while Julian is irritated with his mother's racist attitudes, he lacks the ability to relate or connect to African Americans and has no more understanding of them than his bigoted mother. Moreover, his attempt to connect with them is made primarily to make a point to his mother rather than to have any compassion for them as a people. We would say that Julian's mother is a shadow figure and that both he and his mother share a cultural unconscious. His attempt to embrace a new social order through rebellion against his mother's antiquated views keeps him safely in the bosom of a cultural unconscious that keeps African Americans separate and apart, alien to their experience. 
Other Jungian analysts have expanded the concept of the cultural unconscious and applied Jung's concept of complex theory to the cultural level of the psyche, introducing the concept of the cultural complex. The cultural complex function, functions like a personal complex, meaning it leads to unconscious, feeling-tone trains of thought that tend to possess and stand in for the ego, blocking its ability to reflect on different ways of thinking or feeling. Cultural complexes often originate with a traumatic experience that's shared by an entire cultural group. So today we're talking about slavery and um, systemic and institutionalized racism. These shared trauma experiences lead to shared cultural complexes of the group as a whole, as well as within the psyches of individual group members. Unbeknownst to us, Cultural complexes structure our emotional experience and can distort our reality, coloring it to fit an earlier experience or trauma. So that when a complex is constellated, a person may feel possessed by a strong force that cannot be willed away. A cultural complex collects experience that confirms a group's historical point of view and provides a simplistic certainty about the group's place in the world in the face of otherwise conflicting evidence. So I was reflecting on the history of white Americans who immigrated to this continent. We kind of started off with our discussion about them. Many were escaping religious persecution. And as many of you know, the earliest uh, groups of people to arrive on this continent are, are primarily were Puritans and, and a group called the Levelers. They struggled against a fear of the primitive, namely the American Indians as they saw them, and engaged in witchcraft trials to protect them from the unknown. They were terrified of the unconscious. The foundation of the Puritans' belief that the world was a corrupt place, but one that could be transformed through hard work, eventually became the cornerstone of the American dream one of mastering one's own destiny. Like Julian, who saw himself as beyond the traumas and small-mindedness of his antiquated mother, European immigrants who landed at Ellis Island were eager to leave behind their pasts, their painful pasts, and discover a piece of the American dream. Having experienced their own historical collective trauma in their home country and fearing the unknown, they functioned out of a cultural complex, one that promoted a binary worldview, conscious versus unconscious, outside versus inside, us against them, superior versus inferior. Now, I'm telling you all this because very often we're all, you know, I'm preaching to the choir about racism, right? We all are, are here for a reason because we want to understand it. But often what we're talking about has to do with what, you know, what's wrong, uh, what, what's systemically wrong, and what, you know, how we can help African Americans, right? What we can do. Um, but we're not working on ourselves, which is really what the cultural complex is all about. What is our history? What are our traumas? What is it that leads us to be caught in a cultural complex so that we project things on either other white people, black people, whoever, um, who seem different? Right? And we then lack an ability to stay 
focused, centered, and reflect on what we're, we're projecting. Analytical psychology invites us to value experiences that stem from a world field other than that of the conscious mind. We're encouraged to be open and curious, willing to suffer impingements, and face the fear that comes when facing what is mur comes when one is facing what is murky and unfamiliar. Within the white within the United States, whites have historically considered them themselves to be regular and in alignment with dominant social norms, certainly not ethnic. This white system based on patriarchal European ideas, and somebody brought up gender, um, we live in a patriarchy, holds the development of individual aut autonomy in high regard, whereas in most cultures, a person is defined as a social being, and developing a capacity for empathy and connection with others is the developmental ideal. Now this goes against even the cultural unconscious of Jungians, right? Jungian analysts, which is all about individuation, separating yourself from the collective, <clears throat> finding your own individual path. But we, we also need to look at what that leaves out and what that cultural complex is and what we need to do possibly to look at other cultures, what they have to offer us that we are not responding to or integrating within ourselves. Um, I'm going to stop here just because we're running out of time. And why don't you pick up from, from here? So um, now this is a slide I, do in a, I didn't change the wording too much um, because it's actually a quote. So, so I know uh, Stephanie told me not everybody in here is going to uh, be a therapist. <laughs> But uh, still, I think probably all of us are people of goodwill. If you're not a person of goodwill, raise your hand. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Stephanie was just talking about sort of like uh, uh, concepts of, of our own cultural complex and our own shadow parts or whatever. And as people of goodwill, psychotherapists are people, tend to see themselves as non-judgmental and lacking in malignant bias. They are in many instances trained to become aware of their judgments and to let them go, and caution to maintain neutral objective stances in relationship to others, clients. This narrative of the unbiased, non-judgmental is deadly to the development of countercultural confidence because it presumes a way of being that is difficult, if not impossible, to achieve. So Stephanie would say, it is difficult, if not impossible, not to be impacted by our own cultural complexes. Is that right, Stephanie? Exactly right. All right, I'm getting it little bit yeah, by little yeah, bit. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I can tell you like several, like, a couple of examples. First of all, just to say how I even got interested in this topic, and I told the story to Stephanie. I was working with a, a, a Jewish woman who had some trauma in her history, and she is probably in her early 30s, and she is the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors. And she was leaving my office. She said, you know, it's so nice to sit with a therapist who's a survivor. 
I was like shocked, right? And I was like, I started to dispute it. And then uh, I said, I just like all these shadows started coming to my consciousness mm -hmm. until I actually had to acknowledge that I was a survivor. That was really hard for me to um, acknowledge that. And then I began to see uh, the power of it in my life. And I remember when um, Barack Obama was elected in, uh, the first time, and there's the Grant Park thing. And I took my daughter out of school, she's seventh, eighth grade or whatever, and I'm like, I want her to be able to tell her grandchildren um, that she saw, you know, the first black president, right? So we go down there, we're chilling, everybody's having a good time, so to speak. And then uh, he and his family came on stage. And it was only at that moment that I realized the real reason I was there, which was I wanted to make sure he was still alive. And the first thought that came in my head when they walked on the stage was, they didn't kill him. Right? Because my shadow part says, once you go beyond a certain place, if you get out of your spot, if you get off your spot, they're going to have to kill you. And so I was sure that, they, that he was not going to come out. Right? But I didn't know that was why I was there. Right? And then it's so interesting because I think there has been sort of a lot of what Stephanie refers to as attempts at the soul murder since he's been elected. Right? But that's a, another topic for another day. But um, yeah, so just after my client told me that, these just little waves of experiences came into my consciousness, right? All these kind of what I would call dissociated pieces and constructs, things that I really didn't think about or weren't even in my awareness just began to come online. You know, I, um, uh, it was mentioned that I, I've been studying somatic experiencing, Peter Levine's somatic treatment for trauma. And uh, we worked on this perinatal, prenatal, perinatal thing. There's this technique about this. And um, my thing I worked on was being able to emerge, right? And I initially thought it was about uh, sort of my own birth story, which was that my mother was watching the World Series with Jackie Robinson, and she wouldn't go to the hospital. And so I couldn't come out until after <laughs> the game was over. So I thought that was the emerge story. But since I worked on it, I'm like so aware of all the places where I think I'm, I am not allowed to emerge. You know, so even doing this at the at the CG Young Institute is actually for me emerging. You know, kind of getting off my spot. I know it might sound weird, Steve, 
but it's actually an exercise in emerging to me. So it's an interesting kind of thing. One of the reasons I really love my practice, the owner of my practice, I was so institutionalized and I went to her and said, I don't know how much I should charge for my fee. How much should I charge? And she looked at me, she was a Jewish woman, Mary Jo Bear, she goes, what's it like to ask a white woman how much you're worth? Mm. And no one had ever said anything like that to me before. It was not a, it was just curious. She was just like, but I thought, at least she thought of it and she asked it and there's not that many places where that's going to happen. And I took it for granted that she was going to tell me how much my time was worth. So that's, I think, getting at sort of the shadow pieces that are sort of out, have been outside of my awareness that since that woman said that about me being a survivor, has begun to come back online. Is that making, it's making sense? And so, um, you know, when I, another thing, just in terms of shadow pieces. So in uh, August of 2011, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. I'm cancer free now, but uh, very much. Um, But ever since I've, like, after the chemo and stuff, my hair is not normal. So it's a very weird thing. And I'll tell you kind of <laughs> stuff he's looking at me. One, it no longer gets nappy. Mm-hmm. Now, most people would think, well, what's the big deal? But my nappy hair was part of my identity. And I didn't quite know who I was without it. My hair is straight now. Not only that, it's thin, right? It hasn't grown all the way back in. And I remember, and I was trying, actually, I'm still I'm a little traumatized, and you would think, Anita, you're cancer-free. They tell you there's less than a 5% chance that it'll come back. You should be really appreciative. Why are you traumatized about something as minor as hair? But can you guess why as an African-American woman, woman would get traumatized around hair? Yeah. And what came online is this memory. I must have been five years old, and I used to have like very long, very thick hair when I was little, younger. And my Aunt Mildred said, you better not ever cut your hair because that's the only thing you have going for you because you're so dark. She's Creole. She's from New Orleans. That's her culture. That's my culture, right? So the fact that my hair doesn't really grow too much anymore, that it's very, very thin, means I don't have the same value. Right? I think that's a cultural complex, right, Stephanie? Yeah. So um, I just was just going to talk a little bit about this. Um, you know, I was telling Stephanie about this, and she thought it was very... She was very curious about it. My grandmother had a cousin named Verna, and my her cousin passed for white. And 
she married a fairly wealthy uh, white man, right? And my grandmother went to work with her as the maid, which might sound weird, right? But that meant she had access to privilege, my grandmother. So her cousin, at a time like in the 40s, was able to help my grandmother put her children through college, which was sort of a lot of power. She gave her the extra crystal and all this fancy stuff that she didn't want. She gave them all clothes, you know, all these. So my grandmother appreciated her so much, she named my mother after her, actually. They were so close, right? But just this concept that, um, you know, in in those layers that of culture that I exist within, probably in the greater American culture, maybe in the greater African-American culture, maybe in the New Orleanian African-American culture, passing is like, you know, how dare you, you know, deny who you are or whatever. But in the Creole New Orleanian culture, it means it's a way of having power, value, and connection and control over your life, which is sort of the antidote to the trauma, the counterweight to the trauma. I just wanted to touch on that just a little bit. Okay, thank you. Right, now we're going to blow you away, unfortunately, in a, in a not fun way. Uh, let's see, I'm going to exit that show.
talking about racism post-slavery with that film and we talk about slaves and we when we talk about uh, you know, what's happened to African Americans we really focus on that but we don't focus on what happened after that and and uh, Anita said some things about it you know the Jim Crow laws the separate but equal way of, of operating. The, the lynchings that occurred whenever um, African Americans were able to be successful in developing communities, um, that was such a, um, an assault to white consciousness that that had to be destroyed in some way. Um, so I guess as part of this, and, and I think Anita's going to talk some more about microaggressions and things like that, but think about ways in which we operate unconsciously, carrying some of this in our cultural heritage, because it's, it's, all, it's in all of us, right? Um, I see these pictures and I see the children there, and um, am horrified, and we talk about ISIS and what ISIS has done and how brutal... Um, but this was just, you know, this was within the last hundred years or so that many of these things happened. The episode in Jasper was 1999. So all within our lifetimes. So um, do we need to process? You want to talk about this some? Because uh, it's pretty uh, heart-wrenching. And um, as Anita reminds me, um, what's the word you use? Activating. <laughs> well, I was seeing women at the first class, and how I didn't realize that there were women. Yeah, like we were somehow. Yeah, we were more virginal. Uh, there was one thing that um, just a quick meaning thought went through with a couple of the scenes where either people have their back against the hang and. As if it just reminded me how sometimes hunters will string up a deer and then take a photo of her patch. Why you stand up here and show me? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, sad to see it that way. But, you know, just another animal or the animals have sensitivities too. So what do you think about the fear yeah. that uh, someone would have or What's going on with them that they would be so threatened by an African American person? I mean, it really points to how terrified many people in their culture are, in the white culture, of the unconscious mm -hmm. and, and what, what it holds. Yes. I was um, aware as I was watching that how um, often when I've been shown images of or white supremacist groups or even the proliferation of movies about Nazis that then seems to just keep coming and coming that it's often a way for me to, to set myself apart and say, you know, those are evil 
people mm-hmm. who do evil things, and I feel so different from that. And I think a lot of white people um, in our country have that. And you, you guys alluded to this earlier that we really um, we like to position ourselves as different from those bad people. Um, and what came up for me is wondering what on earth um, is going on unconsciously for um, you know within me and people I know that are vestiges of this kind of hate and this kind of racism and um, you know something less alienating than the images of the perpetrators. Well, I mean, I can give you an example. My Pilates instructor is African American woman. She's a little older than me, and I adore her. I probably wouldn't be standing here. I'd be crippled if it wasn't for her. Um, she's just uh, very gifted. And um, I was telling her about this workshop, and she just came back from Charleston. She and her husband both. Um, he is uh, one of the uh, founders of Muntu Dance Company. I don't know if you all are familiar with that. It's an African American dance company. And she does body work. And they went to Charleston to work with some of the congregational members uh, that were a member of the church where people were killed. And she was talking about their faith, and, and I could say more about that. But the point I wanted to, in response to your comment, one thing I wanted to say is I was talking about this. I was talking about the shadow, and I was talking about the dark parts of oneself. And then I realized what I've said in terms of dark and what that meant. And I said, you know what, that right there is, that feels like a microaggression. I wasn't mm-hmm. even conscious mm-hmm. of my language and how that might come across or what that might feel like to someone um, who is identified as being dark, right? Um, anyway, she, she came back and was talking about one, she was talking to some of the women who were like in their 80s or 90s and the power of their faith. Um, it really wasn't, uh, it, I don't know how many of you saw the, the women forgiving the white uh, boy that whatever. Dylan Storm. Pardon me? Dylan Storm. Yeah. Um, forgiving him. And uh, and we could have shown that too. It's, it's extremely powerful to watch and imagine that people have the strength to do something like that. And of course, my friend uh, Judith Cooper. Um, uh, Told me about a New York New Yorker article that I that she sent me um, about how that in itself is controversial among the African American community because uh, they're forgiving, but where is the where's the fight? You know, where is the African American standing up for oneself and saying this is okay? So uh, <clears throat> even within the African American community, that's that's a tension. But for us to really um, see how in subtle ways we're carrying this legacy in terms of our cultural unconscious. It's really important. Yeah, I think that Stephanie, that um, in the context of what was mentioned earlier, uh, the American dream. Yes. That when you look at that video and then you consider, you know, land of opportunity, home of the free land, land of the yeah. <laughs> Home of the brave. Land of the free. There you go. Yeah. It loses its meaning. Yeah. Well, the sense or the sense of there's winners and losers. That in order for 
some people that feel like it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. Like, it felt like those people standing there were probably like, oh yeah, land of the free, home of the brave, thanks yeah. to us keeping it safe or whatever their way of understanding it was, of that in order for us to have what we need, we need to destroy the other. Eric, and then. I hope I'm not wrong with this, but I think the song, Strange Fruit, was written by the son of Ethel Julius Rosenberg. Mm. And you know, his parents, in his view, were, were lynched um, because of being other. And so a very empathetic song. I, I could be wrong, but I think it was. In 1976, and I remember it distinctly because I was pregnant, I was driving down to the Smokies and passed in Knoxville, Tennessee, a Baptist church that had a marquee outside of it. And the marquee read, God created the races different. White, holy, Jew, devil, black, beast. And I thought and thought how it would be to have that as a part of your daily life, to drive by. That, that declaration. And I think so much of what we're talking about has to do with control, with maintaining control, with maintaining power. And that's the institutional part of all of this. And it's really important to acknowledge it, that the Second Amendment only says that state militias are you know, an important part of them because the state militias were organized to enforce slavery. And they were organized groups of, of white gun owners who would make sure that slaves didn't escape. Um, and then you get the whole thing, which I'm sure you all read about, in the housing policy, federal housing policy after World War II, where the Democrats, they wanted to have um, a housing program, housing subsidies. But to get the law passed, the Democrats had to let the Southern Republicans or whoever it was dictate that that would be segregated housing. And so for a generation, the federal government only subsidized segregated housing, which let white, white working class people develop some equity and black people not have any equity. And that is all institutional, and it's all about control, and psychologically, but Mm -hmm. out there socially as well. Thanks, Rainbow. Do you want to take it from there? So I just had another little shadow coming forth. So I have to tell you the truth. This is my acknowledgment, and I usually don't make acknowledgments afternoon. <laughs> I'm going to make an exception because I really like you guys. Um, when Stephanie first showed this video, I said, Stephanie, you can't show you can't show all of that. They're gonna be traumatized. It's definitely nope, it's okay. They can be activated, they can be activated and so whatever. So when I was sitting there and I realized it was because of how activated I could get. Because when I watch it, it's not about other people. It's really about me. And that that could be me. And it's a, it does a whole different thing to my nervous system and to my brain or whatever, I think, because I identify so much with the prey. 
so to speak. So is that a cultural complex? Definitely. She's teaching me about this whole cultural thing. Yeah. Barbara? Yes. Uh -huh. so what happens to me is I can make it all white people are of it, mm -hmm. and the black people are of it. That's not me. And as I watched it, that's what I was so aware of, is, you know, because you sort of brought to the core. We're also there. But it's just too hard for me to acknowledge any ethnic as part of me. Yes? Uh, you know, as a person of color, it, it's definitely activated. It's very, very intense. Um, I wondered about other groups at the time and what their response was to seeing what was being done to African Americans. Can you like give an example, like what it did like, to like the like the feeling of okay, these people are being persecuted in my nest. And um, because, you know, um, well, during segregation, of course, there were other groups of Hispanics living mm -hmm. also watching mm -hmm. what was happening. Or Asian, Chinese Americans, right. or Japanese. Yeah. Native Americans. Right. So Native that's Americans. something that I started to kind of, and I don't know, I'm thinking now about a lot of stuff that's coming up with um, Donald Trump. Uh, yeah. You know, I'm thinking it, this moment feels like stuff is coming up in regards to his comments about the wall. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the same kind of. Mm -hmm. It feels the same to you. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, I'm just wondering about the knowledge of the activist. I am like activist, and I can't believe I'm the only person here that is an activist, you know? Yeah. And that's what I find kind of, like you've got a lot of intellectual takes on that. I mean, I was left with, this is like the Auschwitz of America. Right? Mm -hmm. I was left with extreme, um, for me, sadness. Mm -hmm. And uh, almost like, you know, not put into words even now. So, I mean, I just find it interesting that the same is going on, I think, here a little. Oh, definitely. I think, mm -hmm. I think many people are doing the same thing. That's why now you make these calls. You know, we need to do something. That's a good question. We don't want to move into a variety of different things. We don't have to feel that. Because sadness is Because I think we're reactive Yes. I think beyond, in addition to sadness, one of the harder things as a white woman having privilege is is um, the shame. Yeah. Because I, my automatic, I was like, those were literally my ancestors, my grandparents were in Romania. That was not me. <laughs> the truth is, I carry the privilege of being a white person to those people. So um, culturally, those are my ancestors, that child, that mother, that, that man. Are those people, and I think that's the work that we have to do. And you know, I so you know, you're so powerful when you talk about the layers of, of um, post-slavery syndrome. I think there's also the impact of being white in our culture, <coughs> the technology of whiteness, of ignoring those, like going on and having a Christmas hat or something horrible like that. That's a technology that I think culturally we all carry as white people. We have to dismantle that in order to heal, not even our culture but ourselves. And I just think. 
think it's so powerful to look at the intergenerational impact for people of color, but I think also we as privileged people have to do that harder work and sit with the shame, not the sadness, because the sadness can look into that was so sad that it's like, no, pity for something, the truth is it's all of us. That's what it is. Yeah, and it's a. I'm glad you mentioned that because shame actually was my primary emotion. It's a kind of an interesting thing, and the shame is the like there's somewhere that if it were verb, it if it were a cognition or verbalization, and, and I even struggled to like say it. It's like, how do we let those people do that to us. Like, it's almost like, why didn't we jump off the slave ship? Do you know what I mean? The shame is in the powerlessness. And like, like, almost like, you know, I work a lot with trauma survivors, abuse survivors, or whatever, and they always like, carry, uh, almost always carry this piece up. It was my fault because I didn't stop it or I didn't fight or I didn't do this so I didn't do that and so the shame it's interesting you mentioned that's the primary emotion for me even stronger than sadness is like this I can't believe you know do you know what I mean yeah somebody else had their hand yes I um I've heard that song for a long time and I really don't know what it's about oh strange fruit That's how I dissociated, I think we can be in the culture that we don't even know what what the content is sometimes. I, I didn't. Mm-hmm. And I had heard that song before. Mm-hmm. It just it just blew my mind that that was what it was about. Mm-hmm. It was like some world opened, you know, a window opened up that I had no idea that that's what was coming about. And then listening to it now, it's like how could I have not known? Mm-hmm. Especially listening to songs, you know, but mm-hmm. Anybody else need to use the words? It it might seem um, like it was provocative to show, but I think what Judith was saying about the the music, the song, I I think we we live with this all the time, but it's way back there. It's it's not front and center, but it's front and center for African Americans all the time. And that's what we need to be much more aware of is putting this out there for us to look at and face it and reflect on it and think about it and have us understand how this operates in us. Yeah. Oh, yes. I'm trying to understand how this operates in us from myself and I'm wondering if um, if the flip side of shame is rage that is, if you say shame is in the powerlessness, then it strikes me that um, rage or anger is a way of constructing an identity. And having some power. And having some power. Exactly. But would you then say that the people who are in the, in the pictures that you just showed us are acting out their own shame? Hmm. 
that could actually be like the projection of sort of like their own guilt and shame and culpability and need to make others lesser. Well, yeah. yeah, but not I, consciously. I don't think it. No, you know. no, obviously not consciously. But um, I'm, I'm hearing some notes around here, and I'm wondering why are you saying no? I'm, I'm just interested. I'm not saying that that's wrong. I just wonder why Why would people, what's wrong with that idea? I, I need to know that. I think um, shame, rage, a person's own inferiority, it could be so many things that is part of um, Shadow. Right. That we don't want to see in ourselves. They didn't want to see in themselves. So they acted it out and by projecting it on people that they thought were lesser than them. And would you say that shame is inherited? That is, if trauma can be inherited, can you, would you say that trauma is the dimension of trauma that is shame? It's also inherited. Mm -hmm. yeah. On many levels, it could be part of the personal unconscious, it could be part of the cultural, and definitely it's part of our archetypal realm, of the archetypal realm. It, it exists. Yeah. Great points, great points. So, so I'm going to talk a little bit about the biology, neurobiology, and the evolutionary kind of way of bias. An evolutionary bias in psychology indicate that humans are coded to notice difference. Now I know a lot of us are this recent, relatively recent emphasis on neurobiology and the limbic system and the amygdala and all that, right? Especially within trauma. I think some, a lot of times we think the amygdala is registering threat. But how does it decide what's a threat? It notices, what it's actually noticing is difference, right? It's coded to notice difference, right? Because difference is really, uh, since our primitive ancestors, is what was interpreted as threat. Sameness or someone belonging to our tribe more or less, so to speak. Our species, our tribe, looks like us, was considered safe, right? And the social engagement piece <laughs> comes on and all that. But then the amygdala registers threat, but it, it picks up difference in order to register threat. So it says, limbic systems also implicated in the trauma response light up and become active when data become available that another human differs in some way. Their limbic systems are the components of human brains that run in parallel, so side by side, they're not intersecting, <laughs> with the cognitions of the prefrontal cortex. And that, as any trauma therapist knows only too well, can overpower the thinking brain, firing more quickly and with more impact. The notion that a therapist, or anyone I might add, can be unbiased presumes the absence of limbic system input 
as well as of any personal life history that has ascribed meaning to difference, either positive or otherwise. No psychotherapist matches these criteria. So in other words, our limbic systems are always noting difference, and almost always, or often, difference is um, uh, interpreted as threat, or responded to as threat. So even when you think about these police shootings, say, just to, to kind of put it within a context, right? Why do black men run when they see a police officer? Sure, they've been taught not to do that or this or what could happen and then right now. But it's the limbic system, right? Has nothing to do with executive functioning that says uniform, gun, run. Or even fight, but mostly run. Right? And then what are the limbic systems are of the police officers coded for? Does a black male run away sort of in their brain a little bit like a runaway slave? Out of control, a threat to their life and, and what? They have to, you know, get control. Fast way get control is with the gun. So I'm not saying either side right wrong. It's not a moral judgment. It's more like the neurobiology. There is something happening that goes beyond cognition. And so then when we try to explain it, right, it actually, we really can't fathom what's actually going on because we're just thinking about it, right? And maybe not acknowledging the neurobiology of what's actually going on. Somebody had their hands no. Yeah, in the back. What, what I was thinking when you were saying that, from the, the policeman's perspective, is the danger that is in the social order that they're sworn to protect and uphold. Can you can you say a little bit more about that? Well, the, the policeman is kind of there to separate the society from the more primitive aspect. And if somebody is disobeying the policeman, whether they're African American or not. And they have to restore order. Right. Well, yeah. if it means taking, you know, a life. How do you know that a person's uh, uh, challenging the system? It might be just walking down the street. I've been made by the police. You know, walking to a concert. So I mean, they make assumptions. They make assumptions and. Uh, they assume that uh, black men are criminals. Mm -hmm. And remember the thing about the police, they were founded by plantation owners, by the Barbados Code. This is not like black people and white people getting together and say, we're going to form a police department. These were founded <laughs> by the plantation owners because they considered blacks their property. And blacks who escaped from slavery, the Underground Railroad, were considered mentally ill. Mm -hmm. I saw another hand go up over here somewhere. Maybe, maybe not. Well, I just wanted to say, uh -huh. what you just described is a cultural complex. Say a little bit more, Stephanie. Well, when uh, when someone gets activated, uh -huh. we have to see that as some form of complex, right? Mm -hmm. It takes over for our an ego that's able to reflect and 
these centers are grounded. So um, what happens in those moments might be related to the personal unconscious, something that happened personally to someone as they were growing up, some kind of vacation. But it could also have to do with cultural context. The, uh, when the, the uh, African-American man sees the uniform and the gun and he runs, he's not able to be in touch with his ego in those moments. He is overtaken by the complex that says he will survive because historically, culturally, African-American men were beaten. Um, and he better, he could, he could be in danger, so he must run. So <coughs> there is a, a way that you, what you're describing neurobiologically is also what we're talking about in terms of the so that if a grandparent has experienced something, you're more likely to have a COVID response, literally, to it. And so, mm -hmm. you know, um, I think it's very profound and it really is reflective of what we're talking around. around. And then uh, the predominant culture may say, well, why it's irrational that the person ran from the police like they were saying, and that makes perfect sense. And it may be in the genetic DNA, but really we're talking about changing genetic code. Well, and this is really um, related to um, Jung's word association experiment, because that's how he developed the notion of the complex. That he, he, he would read out a word and a person would have some kind of physiological response and not be able to respond uh, to the word that's being read. But the other thing he noticed was that very often members of the whole family had the same response, mm -hmm. even though they may not have experienced a particular trauma. So Jung saw a special note of Jung Hmm. And I can't help but think of, uh, for whatever reason, thinking about the ethnocentric complex and how it's triggered in that way, but like the predator-prey relationship and how the running, not only the cultural complex that's triggered, but the running away. And also, when you think about um, that relationship <coughs> in animals and how the movement prompts the mm -hmm. response. Mm -hmm. as well, and how that might play into it too. Um, it's just a thought. I think you're on to something. And I want to just have you look at this. And uh, this is sort of a different kind of look at sort of the brain and the nervous system and whatever. But if you kind of look at this, how this is laid out, conscious, unconscious, and you notice where the metaphorical brain is that contains the information about archetypes, right, and the story. It's in the limbic system. It's not in the cortex, right? So it really doesn't contain executive function. And when the vulnerability or threat goes up, the conscious cortical structures go totally offline. And this is only what you're dealing with, the limbic and the reptilian, right? And so I was looking at, and I know Stephanie's trying to help me learn this stuff. No. <laughs> but uh, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe it. that makes so much sense. Oh, that's it, exactly. Wow. 
right. It's a nonverbal. It's based on image, sensation. There are some base patterns. So that pattern of running away, running away, you know, needing control, all that sort of thing. Long-term memory, and if it's in the limbic system, it doesn't have date and time stamps. It's implicit memory. It's not explicit memory, this long-term memory. So is it ancestral memory, even, that's wired into our limbic system? I think so. And low involvement processing. It's not taking the long route to go up through our cortical structure. It's very much like activation, reaction, activation, reaction, activation, reaction. Right? And, um, yes, I, I just, uh, thought this was an interesting, right? And then over here, the character, the character archetype story. The caring of the archetypal narrative. Where is that from? Oh, thank you. <laughs> For, maybe you'll give me my your card and I can even... It's from one of my presentations, but for some reason I don't know where I got it from. But I'll, find, I'll try and find out because I'm curious myself. But I do it on... I use it and I couldn't remember. I was trying to remember and I just found it yesterday where I had, where I had that slide. And I was, because I was thinking about, wow, I think I remember that it actually contained in the nerve, the, how archetypes are stirred, stored in the brain and in the nervous system. And I found it last night and it's in my presentation on self-regulation, actually. Right? And so I think about, you know, all the, the times when we <coughs> act. Now, Stephanie's been trying to tell me that fundamentally there's a piece of this that doesn't change. And you said, right? I said, well, we can overcome this, right? We can transform it and overcome it. And you said, oh, it's always there. It's always there, Stephanie. It's the awareness. Right. So I thought, I said, I have these six steps of in terms of self-regulation. And I think they're primarily, like I said, I mostly do trainings for therapists. But um, I think it can it would apply to anyone. And I said, I think the police, like everybody should get this information, these six steps. That first we have to kind of attune, right, to like our own activation. Just even notice that we're activated, right? And then we have to accept what's already here. That activation's already here. That narrative's already here. That history's already here. The traumatization's already here. We have to accept that that actually is already here, right? Even when I don't want to think it's here, it's actually already here. And then regulate myself, I'll use myself, regulate it like like kind of bring it into consciousness, work with it or whatever, and reflect and evaluate. Right? And then in a mindful way do something or intervene or whatever. But oftentimes, you know what I think happens? I think oftentimes we go from one to five. We go to noticing activation and then acting, right? 
right? And often the acting is not mindful. And then kind of integrating it into the consciousness, right? And I told Stephanie this story, and then I'll end because um, the time I want people to be able to talk and bring things up if they want. About seven, eight years ago, maybe, I was doing a presentation with Mary Jo at the Naomi Ruth Cohn uh, conference. It's a conference they have in the spring every year in Evanston, and it's named after a woman by her parents. They start this conference, and the parents, she committed suicide. She was a social worker who um, had major depression and eventually committed suicide. And her parents do this conference once a year. And Mary Jo and I were doing this presentation. Just so happens in the synagogue, and the basement, the air conditioning was out. And so it was kind of crowded. And I got up to talk, and everybody in the audience was sort of middle-aged and older and white. And they had this look of, dis- I said, disapproval mm-hmm. on their face. But, and I froze. I went into a freeze. I couldn't talk. Mm-hmm. I said, Mary Jo, you got to talk. You got to tell them. She goes, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I said, I can't talk. You got to get up. And I sat down. And she got up and she acted like, you know, it was okay. Like nothing, you know, she didn't even say anything. She just went on and she just did the presentation. And then this dissociated image came into my mind of when I was like about seven years old. I was in New Orleans and I'd taken my little cousin Marie Chanel to get her allergy shots. And my grandmother had given us money, I was so proud, to stop on Canal Street, which is sort of like State Street, New Orleans, Canal Street to get a hot dog, french fries, and a Coca-Cola. So we came back from the doctors. We were going to switch um, streetcars on Canal Street. And then we, I took her and we went into the store. And the name of the store is Maison Blanche. Anybody know what that means? Mm-hmm. Lighthouse, yes. And I went up and I said, well, I had two hot dogs, two french fries, and two Coca-Colas. And the woman looked at me and she goes, came here. Mm-hmm. You got to go around the back to the annex. And so I had to, I was holding my little cousin's hand, because she's three years younger than me, and we turn around, and it was sort of like this walk of shame, past all these white faces with this look of disapproval. And so when I was given the presentation, I reacted based on what had happened when I was seven years old. I was in the same mind state, and I was just as ashamed, just as frozen, just as traumatized as I had been then. But now that I know it, right, I can, it's in my consciousness, I can regulate it. I know you guys aren't those people in Maison Blanche, right? I know where it comes from. I know how to manage it. And so I guess the only thing I want to say is the more we can attune to our own shadow parts. Do I have anything about that? Um, yeah, the more we're going to have access to our own wisdom, actually, I think. Um, 
and that as much as we can acknowledge that we have them and bring them in consciousness. And I think this last part is the part, the last quote is the one I really wrestle with in myself too, which is this, such a man knows that whatever is wrong in the world is in himself. And if he only learns to deal with his own shadow, then he has done something real for the world. And I wrestle with that because I don't want to believe that that's the truth. You know, I want to believe that it's not in me, it's out there. But if it's out there and it's not in me, then I really can't change it. I don't have that control. The way I have power and the way I have control is once I bring it online and acknowledge that it's already there. So that's what I'm saying, and I don't know if you want to. Uh, okay. We'll just have a wrap up and uh, answer any questions you might have and uh, have a discussion. We didn't talk about microaggressions. Did you no. want to just say something about that? Well, microaggression are aggressions that kind of fall under the radar. So I can give a couple of quick examples if that's okay. Yeah, yeah. So it's, and it's usually deeply embedded in our culture and in our, our vernacular. So I really had a lot of activation when my daughter was in high school around two things. The use of, of that so ghetto. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was never about something that was good. Mm-hmm. All right? And I know there were ghettos in Poland, but when I hear ghetto, I'm not thinking of Krakow. I'm thinking of the South Side or the West Side or, you know, Watts in Los Angeles. I'm thinking of black people. You know, so that so ghetto, to me, is a microaggression, a micro-insult, uh, or whatever, against, you know, poor black people. And the other one that really activated, and I really, you know, like, wouldn't allow it in my house to use either one of them, that's so gay. I cannot tolerate that either, because, again, it was not about something that was a compliment. And so those, I th- and it was firmly embedded. I don't know if has anybody else heard, the, heard people use, yeah. So firmly embedded, it's like, oh, it's, you know. And then it's just tried, you know, brushed off or whatever as though it didn't mean anything. You know, but it means something. And um, if you live in a ghetto or if you're gay, it means a lot. You know, when people say things like, so those are examples of insults, microaggressions in the terms of insults. But it's microaggressions. It can be insults or things that actually the person's not, does not necessarily have a malevolent intent, but because it's so embedded in the culture or in the vernacular, it becomes sort of this automatic reference place or whatever. There are micro-assaults, you know, that they're not a threat to life and well-being, but they are assaults, nonetheless. Kind of like snarky, like snarky. Yeah, yeah, so. Is that, because yeah, yeah. we only have like Wanted 10 minutes. Wanted to make sure we them. covered that. Yeah. So, questions? What just came up for me about microaggressions in this context was about them as, part, I wonder if part of the way to understand it is that they do represent a part of the cultural complex that's kind of surfacing in that moment. It's like, why is that? Why are you saying, what's the meaning of that's so ghetto or that's okay? It's because it's carrying the load of 
you know, so it's just, it's like a, a symptom in a way of the broader cultural complex that's shared. It's unconscious in us to say things that maybe for us we we think is is neutral, right? But it's it has no meaning. this meaning because it's carrying this meaning we all. But it has enormous meaning if we think about what's happened historically and culturally in this country. So, mm -hmm. very important. Mm -hmm. I also just had to, I, I was so, there's something about the whole, um, like the various things that you've been sharing with us today that I feel like in the direction of this self-awareness that I do feel very affected. <laughs> and one of the things when you brought up about plantations, about police, you can... Please serve now. Plantation owners count as a police under the Barbados Code. When? You're saying like in the... 1700s, and the highest, uh, the place where slavery was the highest was Newport, Rhode Island. That's where all the slaves came in, in Wall Street. So part of what was evoked for me when you brought this up was this <coughs> sort of painful integration of the reality that plantation owner culture is part of my cultural complex. Yes. Um, and so, so part of what people were saying about seeing the Ku Klux Klan and being like, oh no, that's, that's not me, those are those southern whatever, you know, but it's like, oh no, that's my shared, that's part of that. Well, you know, right here in Chicago, and it, it was interesting to me that I, I found this really strong, there's a strong paternalistic attitude that I sensed here in Chicago, coming from Texas, Austin, Texas, originally, where everybody's, you know, out there fighting their battles. But the Pullman train community was all about um, the plantation owner, really, um, controlling a whole community. They had to buy their food there, they had to pay him rent. This was their employer. They had to have housing with him. And basically he controlled their lives. Um, so that, you know, that that was uh, after the plantation uh, period, but it still gets enacted all of the time in different ways and different forms. And just to have the eyes to see some of these things is really, really crucial. And I think very often many of us are um, committing microaggressions mm -hmm. all the time mm -hmm. without mm -hmm. recognizing them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Any other questions? I'll throw this in. Mm -hmm. If people are interested in reading more about micro microaggressions, there's a wonderful book by Claudia Rankin, who is a poet. The book is called Citizen, and it's not actually verse poetry. They're, they're sort of short blocks of, of text. And, and images, and it's uh, you know it's autobiographical, it's historical, and it's really wonderful. Thank you, Rankin, R A N K I N E, Claudia Rankin. Oh, is it E on the end? It has an E on the end. Uh -huh. Yeah, I want to write that down. So. Yeah, you'll love it. She's she's wonderful. And the name of the book again? Citizen. One thing I wanted to bring up is that um, I know we didn't talk about African Americans, but when you, uh, like you, you said, there's some other immigrant groups or refugee groups like Iceland, like among people who are past who uh, are just in, but so they stayed out without they get bothered in the summer and they don't get charges. 
but a lot of times they wouldn't judge race in the same way we we do. In fact, I was puzzled one time when I had a garden workshop and the monkeys who didn't know me thought I must be Hmong because I was behaving like a Hmong person. So the, the skin is always the important skin picture is always the important factor, but the context in which you're which you're doing mm -hmm. behaving. And because they put in their Hmong name, I must be Hmong. Mm -hmm. I was eating their food. Well, who else would eat this kind of food but a Hmong person? But I'm not Hmong. And then they went on and well, then he must be Chinese or he must be Korean. So they were very confused. Or oh, your husband must be Hmong. You know, because you'd have to cook this kind of food for mm -hmm. right, Is this the Hmong, like the... It's not Hmong, but Hmong. Hmong? Hmong. Okay. Hmong. Oh, okay, but it's spelled with an H, right? Asian, because when I uh, taught the cultural complex before, I showed the film Gran Torino, which I thought yes, was sure. um, mm -hmm. an exa excellent example of cultural complex, and mm -hmm. the man having to confront that within himself. Yeah. It's just that it was kind of confusing because I thought very well, clearly the white, but I'm clearly not mom, but they were very confused because of the patient. Mm -hmm. That was very helpful. It's extremely complicated. Yeah. Did you have your hand up? Yeah, yeah I, I like to find literature to uh, support some of the analytic ideas. And one thought I had was Shinwa uh, Shady. Yeah. Who? Uh, Okay. But he uh, makes a point that around 1600, it was very convenient for Europe to have an oven. Just at the dawn of colonialism, that suddenly there was an economic incentive to, to put the other on the Africans, and they can emerge. The, the Caucasians can emerge out in the West. And you know, isn't that not projecting? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, you could say manifest destiny is a cultural complex, right? Mm -hmm. Anything else? You all have been wonderful. All right, thank you. Thank you for your podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2019 supporter-level donors, Bill Alexi, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Circle Center Yoga, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Lorna Crowell, D. Scott Dayton, George J. Didier, The Cole Family Foundation, Ramakrishnan and Full Bloom Lotus, Suzanne G. Rosenthal, Deborah Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, and Gerald Weiner. 
If you would like to support this podcast, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.